I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. Today on Truth of the Matter, we have with us Jeffrey Mankoff, who's a senior associate at CSIS in our Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program. Jeff is also at the National Defense University as a distinguished research fellow. I should say at the outset of this podcast, all of the opinions he expresses on this podcast are his own. Jeff, thanks so much for being here today. I wanted to ask you, what is going to be the long-term effects on U.S.-Russian relations based on this war with Ukraine? Yeah. So the U.S.-Russia relationship had been in a bad way for quite a while when this war started. And I think now there's very little prospect that that relationship is going to normalize anytime soon. The U.S. is very openly supporting Ukraine, including through the provision of of significant military assistance. The Biden administration has characterized uh, President Putin as a, a war criminal who's engaged in genocide. So given that, I think there's very little prospect that we're going to go back to anything like a normal relationship, at least as long as, as Putin is in power. But we haven't cut off diplomatic relationship with them. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means that there are still channels of communication, which I think is important as far as ensuring deconfliction, ensuring that there's some clarity about what the other side's intentions are, given the concerns about the potential for this conflict to escalate and both vertically and horizontally. Now, the United States policy, which was clarified by President Biden, is not one calling for a regime change or trying to do anything to cause regime change. But clearly, you know, in the Senate, members of the Armed Service Committee, such as Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina, said, quote, I hope we'll at some point we'll be able to normalize relations with a leader of Russia. I don't know if that could ever be with Vladimir Putin. What does that actually entail? I think Senator Tillis is is right in that regard. I mean, the U.S. can't openly state that it has a policy of regime change, especially against a nuclear-armed great power. At that point, basically, the U.S. becomes a participant in this conflict, and the, the risks of escalation become you know much more severe. That said, I think President Biden's statement was a reflection of reality that as long as, as President Putin is in power, this relationship is going to be in crisis. Jeff, how does a U.S. policy towards Russia differentiate, for instance, from its policy towards China? So the U.S. has lots of problems with China, but because China is not currently engaged in activities targeting its neighbors, the problems that the U.S. has with China are mostly reflective of things China is doing internally and the potential threat that it poses to neighbors like Taiwan. Because it's not engaged in an active war of expansion and conquest in the same way that Russia is, I think the U.S. is adopting a more restrained approach towards China. At the same time, of course, the U.S. has a lot more equities in the bilateral relationship with Beijing, right? China is a major U.S. trade partner. It's a major pillar of the global economy. Some of the restrictive measures that have been adopted towards Russia would be very difficult to implement vis-a-vis China simply because of the effect that they would have on, on the U.S. and the global economy. In what way is the United States policy towards Russia related to its policy towards China? Yeah. So the, the Biden administration has characterized the current era in international politics is one where there's a a sort of epochal struggle between democracy and autocracy. And in that sense, characterizes both Russia and China as being avatars of this autocratic uh, approach. And in seeing the global system as as being based on this struggle and wanting to vindicate democracy as a, a 
form of governance, the Biden administration has identified both Russia and China as rivals, as countries that the United States sees as being uh, revisionists vis-a-vis -vis the, the kind of, of liberal rules-based international order that the United States has long upheld, and sees those relationships as being essentially competitive. At the same time, I think there's a difference, both because, again, Russia is engaged in a, in a war of conquest in the here and now, whereas the Chinese military threat, at least, is hypothetical, but also because Russia doesn't have some of the same long-term sources of strength that China has. Its economy is is pretty static based on resource extraction. It doesn't have the, the capabilities for generating long-term military power or economic power that China has. So Russia is seen as being a sort of immediate problem, whereas China is a much more long-term problem. And part of the challenge that the Biden administration faces is figuring out how do you balance addressing the threat that Russia poses in the here and now, and the longer-term challenge that China poses, given you know constraints on on resources of all kinds. So, how is given all that? How is the United States' relationship with Russia different from the relationship that other Western countries have? Compared to many European allies, the U.S. has much less at stake in terms of its economic relationship with Russia. So it's relatively easy for the U.S. to impose sanctions. So the U.S. has effectively banned the purchase of, of Russian energy and has been pushing its European allies to do the same. But that's a much more difficult proposition for a country like, say, Germany, which gets a significant amount of its oil and gas from Russia. And so in Europe, you have this tension between states especially those that were once under Russian domination, states like Poland and the Baltic states, that want to adopt a very strong, assertive posture of support for Ukraine and you know very serious sanctions and other restrictions against Russia. And then you have countries, of which Germany is probably the most significant, that have been sort of shocked by Russian activities in Ukraine, but nevertheless are wary about going as far as the US and some of these Central and Eastern European countries are because of their own histories and because of their own economic exposure to Russia. Then you also have some U.S. allies and partners in other parts of the world that are trying to hedge their bets a little bit, that don't see the struggle as being one in which they necessarily are, are directly implicated. And so the response of countries like Turkey, for instance, has been a lot more equivocal. On the one hand, supporting Ukraine, being an important weapons provider, but at the same time, de declining to implement sanctions against Russia and taking advantage of the fact that Russian oligarchs and businesses are, are sanctioned in, in many other countries to invite those or at least allow those entities to operate within Turkey. Now, Jeff, you've just returned to the United States from Turkey and from the country of Georgia. What is it like there with this war going on? Yeah. So Turkey and Georgia, of course, are, are quite different. Again, in, in Turkey, public sentiment seems to be kind of mixed. There is support for Ukraine, but there's a, a general sense also that this isn't Turkey's conflict and that Turkey doesn't want to get dragged into it. The Turkish government has been trying to, again, play both sides in a way that sort of maximizes its own room for maneuver, including trying to position itself as a mediator between Kiev and Moscow. Georgia is a very different prospect, in part because of Georgia's own history of conflict with Russia and Russia's occupation of the Georgian territories of South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So in Georgia, there is very widespread public support for uh, Ukraine walking around Tbilisi, the capital, you see a very large number of Ukrainian flags, and pro-Ukrainian graffiti. People are very openly supportive of Ukraine and, and much like people in places like Poland or the Baltic states want to see the, the West and NATO 
play a more active role in, in helping Ukraine defend itself. The Georgian government has been quite cautious, in part because it's worried about the potential blowback of taking too assertive a, a stance given Georgia's own vulnerability, but also because the Georgian government has become increasingly oligarchic and kleptocratic, and there are various financial and other connections to Russia that uh, at least constrain the ability of, of the state to act in the ways that the majority of the population seems to want. Jeff, the United States State Department has said that it has no intention of suspending diplomatic relationships with the Kremlin, despite Moscow's threats to sever ties with us. Do the Russians care about diplomatic ties to the United States? I think they do on some level. Again, diplomatic ties have a symbolic role, but they also have a, a very functional role, and that is they allow the two sides to communicate with one another. And I think that Russia, too, has an interest in making sure that it understands what U.S. intentions are and that the lines that could lead to an escalation of the conflict that could lead the United States or NATO to be drawn into the conflict are not crossed. So I think maintaining those lines of communication is important, both uh, on the civilian diplomatic side and on the military side. And I think that, you know, despite the, the rhetoric that we hear coming out of Moscow about potentially seeing the relationship collapse, there's a, a similar interest in, in ensuring that those lines of communication remain open. Jeff, what do you think the United States might be willing to cede in favor of renewed diplomatic ties with Russia and a path forward? Yeah, I don't think that that's ultimately a question for the United States. I think this ultimately comes down to what Ukraine is willing to uh, accept. If Ukraine is willing to accept some kind of a peace deal, then certainly the United States should be willing to support that. But ultimately, that's a decision that the democratically elected government of, of President Zelensky has to take. At the same time, like we were talking about at the beginning, I don't think that there's a path back to normalization between the US and Russia as long as President Putin remains in power. So even if there's a peace deal, even if there's an end to at least the active stage of, of the conflict, I'm skeptical that the US is going to be willing to walk back the vast majority of the sanctions that have been imposed since this war started. That in and of itself is going to be an obstacle to negotiating some kind of a peace deal. But right now, I don't see a lot of willingness either in Moscow or Kiev to really accept an end of the war. And, and I'm you know, pretty pessimistic about the near future. I think this conflict is going to drag on for, for a while. What do you make of Putin? You've studied him for a long time and you've studied Russia for a long time. What do you make of his actions and what's happening now? I think Putin has always been risk acceptant. I think he's always been a kind of great power nationalist who thinks that Russia has been mistreated and sidelined in the post-Cold War international order. But I think the degree of willingness to, to take big risks and to risk a, a complete rupture in the relationship with the West is something new for Putin. He's always been uh, calculating and, and relatively cautious in a way that his behavior over the last year or so has not reflected. And we can only speculate about what's changed. Certainly the pandemic, isolation, growing consolidation of, of power at home that has cut him off from alternative sources of information probably are all playing a role in this. There's speculation about the state of his health, which is, of course, you know, only speculation. We can't really know. But certainly he has surrounded himself with a, a much narrower circle of advisors than was the case in the past. These people tend to be very hardline and, and ideological. He's been unwilling to listen to critical voices, uh, to even accept the existence of critical voices. Many people who were willing to criticize him have been driven out of the country, have been arrested, in some cases have been killed. 
he also seems, you know, much more short term in his thinking, you know, unwilling to kind of consider what the longer term consequences of this conflict may be for, for Russia and for himself. What would it take for him to lose his grip on Russia? Putin has, especially since he returned to the Kremlin in 2012, been very focused on what he sees as the desire of the United States and the West to unseat him and has built up a pretty robust repressive apparatus within Russia. The most notable piece of this is, is what's called the National Guard or Rasgvardia, which is a couple hundred thousand troops commanded by Putin's personal bodyguard, uh, a man by the name of Viktor Zolotov, uh, and which is assumed to be loyal to Putin as an individual more than it is to, to the Russian state. So given the existence of Rasgvardia, um, I think the potential for a domestic uprising that would push Putin from power uh, is relatively low. I think that the bigger danger that he would face comes from a rebellion or a split within the, the elite. Again, the repressive apparatus that has been built up makes it hard for members of the elite to coordinate. Uh, there's a lot of mistrust. There's a lot of uh, denunciations within the elite. It's very difficult for groups like the army you know, to organize something like a, a military coup, which is something that Russia doesn't really have much of a history of in any event. At the same time, Putin has staked pretty much everything, his own future and the future of the country on this conflict. And if he loses this conflict, which I think is a distinct possibility, then it's going to be very hard for him to stay in power as it has been throughout Russian history. Russian leaders who lose wars don't have a, a very good track record. And I think Putin's aware of that. That's one of the reasons he has you know, proven unwilling to brook any compromise in terms of his attitude towards Ukraine or towards the, the outside world so far. But at some point, military necessity may compel Russia to back down. And at that point, I think it's, it's a, a very distinct possibility that the regime just kind of crumbles. Jeff, do you see a possibility of an off-ramp for him to get out of this in some kind of a distinguished way that ends the conflict and restores order? Yeah, so I think that prudence dictates that the West and, and the outside world needs to be willing to consider providing an off-ramp. I'm skeptical that Putin would be willing to take one. Again, he has framed this conflict in, in fairly existential terms. Um, now that said, again, facts on the ground can change. And I think if it gets to a point where you know, he recognizes that pushing further threatens the cohesiveness of the regime and threatens his own hold on power, he may feel that there's no choice but to back down. At the same time, his own personality, his own history, the, the way that he's framed this conflict make me skeptical that even under those circumstances, he would be willing to back down. And that in that case, you know, this is going to be a fight that continues to the end and the end may be the end of, of Vladimir Putin. Are the sanctions making a difference to him? Is it bothering him? I'm sure it's bothering him. They'll create a long-term drag on the Russian economy and will put additional pressure on the government. But their effect is going to be cumulative. It's going to extend over time. And I think that at least for now, you know, the sanctions are a problem, but they don't rise to the level of, of something that threatens the cohesiveness of the regime. You know, Jeff, a question that's always on the tip of our tongues, given this war with Ukraine, is... Is there much of a risk with a war between the United States and Russia, a hot war, where a shooting war? I think there is a risk. I don't think it's large, but I think it exists. Could see it coming about in 
a couple of different ways. So one is if there's vertical escalation within Ukraine, if Russia decides to use unconventional weapons, let's say weapons of mass destruction, I think the pressure on the United States and NATO to intervene would be extraordinarily high. And we've heard people from within the administration hint that I think the way it was phrased was if Russia uses weapons of mass destruction in Ukraine, then quote, all bets are off. Meaning chemical weapons or... Uh, chemical, tactical nuclear weapons, yeah. biological weapons, all of which Russia has in its, in its arsenal. And some of which it's used before. Yes. Chemical weapons have been used in Syria, probably by the Syrian regime, um, but at least with the acquiescence of, of the Russian government. So these capabilities exist. There have been accusations that there was a, a chemical weapons usage um, in eastern Ukraine a couple of days ago that hasn't been verified. But, you know, certainly the threat is there and the United States has released intelligence information suggesting that it had assessed that uh, Russia was considering the use in particular of chemical weapons. So if that were to happen, then I think that, again, the pressure for military involvement on the part of, of the United States and NATO would grow. The other danger, of course, comes from horizontal escalation, which is that if there is uh, a strike on uh, the other side of the border between Ukraine and a NATO state or Russia and a NATO state. So, you know, if a stray missile falls into Poland or into one of the Baltic states, let's say, then, of course, NATO's Article 5 provisions come into play and NATO would be duty bound to respond. Um, and again, President Biden has made clear in this case, this is a much more direct statement from the president himself, where he said that the United States will defend, as he put it, every inch of NATO territory. And again, I think that was a message to Putin and, and to the Russian government about the dangers of, of that kind of horizontal escalation. But in a scenario where the Russian government becomes desperate, you can't rule out the possibility that they would try to deter further involvement in the conflict on the part of the US and its allies by you know, carrying out some kind of a strike on NATO territory. Of course, the other piece of this now is um, the ongoing debate in Finland and Sweden about joining NATO. Russia has threatened both Finland and Sweden over uh, their aspirations to join NATO. And I think the, where the debate in both countries is, and particularly in Finland, suggests that they will seek to join the alliance in, in the near future. And that creates a, a kind of gray zone, I suppose, where it's very clear that these countries are moving towards NATO, but are not actually covered by the Article 5 guarantee until they're formally admitted. And that does create a, a window of vulnerability there. But again, given the political relationships and given the momentum towards NATO membership in those countries, uh, I think if there were a Russian attack on, on one of them, there would again be uh, very substantial pressure on the United States and on NATO as a whole to, to respond. Jeff, given these risks the US faces with a war with Russia, what are some of the steps our government can take with regard to reinstating deterrence against Russia and Russian allies? Yeah. So a lot of those steps are, are currently being taken. NATO has uh, reinforced its military presence in frontline states. So after the, the 2014 annexation of Crimea and intervention in eastern Ukraine, NATO stood up um, a small-scale enhanced forward presence, it was called in the Baltic states, and a tailored forward presence in southeastern Europe. And these were, you know, relatively small, about 12 to 1,500 troop rotational deployments that were designed to provide reassurance for these frontline states. Now, in the past month or so, those deployments have been uh, significantly expanded, and Secretary General Stoltenberg has talked about having a long-term significant presence in these frontline states. I think that's something that NATO is going to ratify at its upcoming summit later this year. 
And so, I, you know, I, I think this forced posture that's largely existed since the signing of the NATO-Russia Founding Act in 1997, where NATO committed not to station substantial combat forces on a permanent basis in the new member states, is, if not going to be withdrawn, is at least going to be worn away and that we're going to see a substantial military presence in, in Poland and the Baltic states and the other uh, frontline states in Southeastern Europe. And that is a form of deterrence. It, it's designed to show uh, Russia that NATO has the capability to repel any attempt at, at using military force against these states. I think the challenge that NATO has and has always had is how do you effectively ensure deterrence for states that are not formally members of the alliance like Ukraine? And there's not really a good answer to that problem. I think the provision of weapons to Ukraine in the course of the current conflict is helping in that regard. And certainly if Ukraine is successful at repulsing the, the Russian assault, thanks to the, the delivery of weapons, that will contribute to reconsolidating deterrence against Russian aggression towards other vulnerable states, but it's not uh, the same thing as, as deterring aggression against NATO members. I can say when I was in Georgia recently, there was a very widespread fear that Georgia was going to be next, regardless of what happens in Ukraine, whether the Russian assault was successful or not. Because again, it's very hard to deter uh, aggression against a frontline state like Georgia that's fairly small, fairly weak, and that's not a member of NATO. And, you know, I think there's there's just limits to what it is that the alliance is capable of doing for those kind of states. But I would encourage it to, to take the steps that are available to it in terms of signaling political commitments, in terms of training and provision of weapons and other kinds of, of partnership programs that can help uh, promote resilience. Jeff Mankoff, thank you so much for helping us understand this conflict better and what could happen going forward. Thanks so much. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 